0: This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined as always by Susanna Skyver Barton, my <laughs> my co-host for, for now going on eight years of this. Oh, am I doing that wrong? Wait, no, Jason's my Jason's my co-host, my mate, my business partner. Jess is Hello. my co-co-host. Coco. My mate, cocoa. Cocoa. cocoa, It's a warm cocoa. cocoa. It's <laughs> okay. like cocoa Chanel. What's that? Cocoa, cocoa butter. Cocoa, coconuts. Coconuts, <laughs> going coconuts. <laughs> I've got Jason Johnston yelling, Jess Lomas, and back again, the lovely Susanna Skyver Barton here to talk about a tradition. Tradition. <laughs> A year in preview tradition for us here at One Nation Under Whiskey. Susanna, welcome back to the podcast.
1: I am thrilled to be here.
0: I'm thrilled to have you back. <laughs> there's, there's a lot to talk about. I mean, we can, we can look to the past, which I think we should do um, at points, but I am excited to look to the future with you on whiskey
1: me too i've jotted some thoughts down i'm ready
0: all right do you wanna (laughs) do you wanna do you wanna set this up do you wanna no 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 please you
1: are you are the illustrious host with your illustrious co-host please proceed and i will insert my thoughts
0: i guess my initial question for you is thinking back to the beginning of 2023 and what you thought 2023 may look like, here we are. are. Is there anything that surprised you along the way that we may not have brought up or or maybe we brought it up and, and things turned out slightly differently than you expected or is going in a different course?
1: To be honest, I did not listen back to last year's episode. I have no idea what... <laughs> what i said
2: Um, we said we'd be checking the receipts as well (laughs) i would love it if i
1: would if you guys have a list of things that i said and we want to like go through and see how wrong i was i would love that that's a that's a great activity did anything surprise me about this year i think it surprised me to see that this american single malt like official recognition is still kind of dragging Mm. on that's Mm. been it's now uh two years since i was told by it um, who? Someone who was at the time the master distillery, major American single malt distillery. Like we're on the cusp. We're on the cusp. And of course, it was a guess because like he had no secret intel from the yeah. government. This is all just being held up, you know, on the official, legal, governmental end. But we're still kind of nowhere. Like we're we're kind of in the final stages of waiting for that mm-hmm. official thing to come down, and it and it hasn't. And like I don't know. I've kind of given up. Wait, I'm just like, okay, it'll come when it comes. I don't think it mm-hmm. is going to make a huge difference. Um, we can talk about that later. Am I yeah. surprised that people are still paying way too much money for bourbon? Yeah.
2: <laughs> a little. <laughs> we did discuss that we at
1: length in the last that. episode. I, I'm sure we did. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that hasn't seemed to die down in the way that I expected it to like I saw I saw a video recently and the person there was just giving people a tour across these <laughs> like 20 tables and it was all of their individual picks of all of their individual mm. bourbon barrels rye barrels and and they said okay you want part of this you go to this table and you grab this bottle you go to this table you get this bottle you've got to buy all these bottles oh you want a weller too boom there it is and and it's set up to be this this machine of just welcoming people in, letting them grab bottles, taking their money, <laughs> and everybody being on with their way. It was It was a wild video to watch.
1: That's really interesting. I'd love to see that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere on the Facebook. Was
2: there a system attached to this? Like you had to buy A in order to buy B in order to buy C? Or it was just a, hey, if you head over that way, you get... That bottle over there. But if you also want to add, come on over here.
0: Yeah, no, you were you were it was you were being led through the IKEA of of whiskey shops, right? You had to follow the arrows. And it was mm-hmm. it was these smaller brands and okay, you you've purchased those, let's at least this is how it seemed to me. You purchased those and you have now unlocked your choice of a Weller twelve or a Weller one oh seven. And and
2: that's the part I was driving at because for us here in Virginia, I think the system is so convoluted now Mm. that the thought of even buying a bourbon is completely off the table, right? Like there's now emails that talk about product drops, but not all stores have all bottles, and some managers are at their discretion. And it's like, why would I leave my house? Like this (laughs) is just a miserable experience now. So to hear your story there, Joshua, where there is a system in place. Like, the prices are too high. The selections are, you know, are they exciting? That That's a conversation for another day. But now the system attached to it is so convoluted.
1: No, well, you can thank All the control state for that.
2: <laughs> i quite like
1: hearing I'm that in North Carolina. and the-
3: I was going to say, I think it's really funny hearing Jason say it like that. We have the same problem here in the UK with, um, maybe not like, I guess we don't have store picks with bourbons in quite the same way you guys do. Overseas, far, far away. But we have the same thing when people decide they want to get hold of, like, Pappy or the, any of the BTAC releases, that the stores that traditionally uh, have them now have to come up with really creative ways of how you do it. My favourite things that Good Spirits here in Glasgow tend to do is they, if they have a really popular thing, they have a competition where people write haikus. If you want to buy one of these bottles, they encourage you to write a haiku. <laughs> oh. um, or their allocation, I think, for the pappy stuff last year was so small that they didn't even have a full tastings worth of stock. I've done it in previous years wow. where we've been to a tasting and then the people that were in the room at the tasting... Um, they just pulled names out of hats you registered your interest if you thought you wanted to buy anything and then the first way was people in the room bums on seats pull a name out of a hat and if your name came up then you could purchase whatever was being drawn I've been at other places in the UK Milroy's did something similar to that in London but it just makes me laugh that like when I go to the US you've got all these kind of store picks of amazing bourbons and we get literally none of that here it's it's just not a thing it's so weird to hear you guys talking and you did last year in the episode about these kind of like store picks and what's attached to it in the pricing it's it's kind of like just watching you guys through some sort of like looking glass it's just not a consideration we have in the uk at all people punch each other for well, happy is, and that's about it
1: this is kind of one of the things i wanted to look ahead towards Um, You've given me a beautiful segue. Thank you, Jess. Um, Is that, you know, bourbon shows no signs of slowing down here in the U.S. I think there is, we are seeing some like um, price sensitivity at last, but, you know, as a category, it's still going crazy. People are Mm. continuing to buy it, really excited by it. Um, But, you know, my understanding, and you've sort of confirmed this, is that demand is is still pretty subdued outside the U.S. And that... Mm. I've had m- more than one producer, you know, say like we are looking towards the international markets, you know, a- as part of our growth plan for the long term. But no one's really given me any details about how they're approaching, uh, you know, selling outside the U.S. Probably because they haven't quite figured it out yet. Because, mm-hmm. again, for for most uh, distillers and brands, they have enough demand here right now to to sell everything they're making um and so it's as we know in whiskey you know the problem is always a few years down the road it's a problem that's a few years in the future and i'm sure they're thinking hard about it and developing strategies but i think it will be something to keep an eye on maybe not this year maybe not next year but certainly in the next three to seven years um whether or not uh, the big bourbon producers, the ones who have put a lot of money into expansion and, and put a lot of money into laying down stock, uh, whether they are able to develop uh, demand in other mm. markets, um, Western Europe and the UK being a big one, um, but also, you know, I've heard China being mentioned. Yeah, I, that's a question mark for me. There's no guarantee of success, uh, as as we all know, in the whiskey business. <laughs>
2: Did any of you, th- any of the three of you, see a resolution on the the increasing punitive tax on American spirit into Europe?
3: I want to say I saw like a flashing thing saying it was cancelled, and then thought, oh, I'll wait till there's like an actual press release of that, and then never saw one. I'm going to assume it was cancelled because surely by now, people would be starting to get really quite shouty arms, about yeah. the whole thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's a temporary suspension. I don't think it's permanent, as you know, these things tend not to be until they've been the can has been kicked down the road several times. But yeah, yes, I think that's been resolved for now.
2: Okay, okay, because we just had that December 31 of 2023 coming around for whether the the uh, punitive uh, tariff was going to hit 50, percent and mm-hmm. so if mm-hmm. if a can has been kicked, uh, <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me to hear that. But but it certainly features into. How is Europe responding to bourbon? What does it look like if you're an American producer trying to reestablish what you had going on pre-pandemic in Europe? And then obviously to your point, Susanna, there are more markets than just Europe for bourbon. I understand that so.
1: certainly. but Europe being a very mature whiskey drinking market, you know, of mm-hmm. course, right. very appealing.
3: But I have um, friends who work for big brands here. Who were looking at how you strategize and how you place bourbon? I, th- I think one of the brands that one of my friends was looking at, particularly, is a brand that here in the UK is traditionally seen in supermarkets on discount. And it was how about how you tie that in with bringing in other kind of sister brands attached to it that they want to charge a lot more money for that, and how you do that without causing like a seismic shock of people being like, <gasps> but I can buy blah blah bourbon in the supermarket for. £23 on discount in a supermarket regularly, <laughs> why on earth would I go to your insert name of online retailer here and pay £50 a bottle when we've only ever known this brand produce £20 bottles? But this this is a mm-hmm. conversation that also we can add into our future <laughs> year in preview list. That Scotch is having exactly the same identity crisis here in the UK.
1: So... I was going to say, I think the bourbon, the bourbon producers or, or retailers can certainly, you know, have some conversations with their Scotch counterparts about that. Um,
3: I've just had a look here, and the um, punitive uh, tariff has been um, kicked down the can uh, until March thirty first, twenty twenty five. So we can put this oh into gosh. the year in preview twenty twenty five episode. There
0: you
3: go. <laughs> All right. That's quite that, a long that's... kick. <laughs>
0: Whoever, yeah, whoever kicked that, they've got uh, good on them for working their legs. They don't miss leg day. That's nice.
3: <laughs> yeah, if I was good at spots, I, I could I like this do idea nice that analogy. December
2: 31 is right around the holidays. But March 31, we'll all be in the office. You know, we can actually have a conversation <laughs> then. It
3: sounds much more urgent as well, you know, like it's kind of end of Q1. It's nearly new financial year in the UK. Mm. You know, like lots of dates, all of which are completely irrelevant. And they'll continue kicking this down the road for... <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, not and not to put too fine a point on it, but by March 31st of next year, God willing, we will have, um, you know, a president who has been fairly elected and everyone has accepted that. And uh, and there's no one trying to sort of um, raise a ruckus about uh, their mm-hmm. candidate not not getting uh, elected freely and fairly. So, you know,
2: yeah, there's. There's a there's a problem for the four of us, the future <laughs> versions of the four of us to discuss this time next year. So <laughs> let's table that. Oh list. List. Uh,
0: can I can I let's enjoy some of 2024? Yeah, can 2024 I, can I first. change that subject? Please. <laughs> I just, I, I, before we look to the future, I I just wanted to touch again on the American single malt. Um, codif- the codification of American single malt as a category within the U.S., and you may or may not have insight to this, but I was trying to think of another scenario in our modern history where we've gone through this, and and what that timeline has looked like. Is this is this common for it to have its own kicking of the can? down the road, because it seems that's what's happening here. Um, And and are there reasons that that you may have heard of why people haven't finally put the stamp on this?
1: I have no insight into that. I presume it is just caught in the bureaucratic quagmire of a government agency. From everything I can divine from, you know, how the process has gone so far, it's been pretty by the book, pretty smooth and has actually gone rather quickly um, mm-hmm. because, you know, the American single malt whiskey commission has had a really strong presence. They made a big push, you know, they've been very mm-hmm. organized. And at this point, there's nothing more anybody can do it. We really just have to wait for the TTB to kind of like get its shit together and put a stamp on it and say, okay, it's done. And I don't, you know, I have no insight into what might be taking so long or even whether this is a long time to take. I mean, mm-hmm people have said, Oh, it's coming in the next 90 days. You know, they've been telling me that for over a year and that hasn't happened. And I don't know where they get their information and it might just be wishful thinking. Um, so hopefully we see that happen this year. I I think the TTB just like they, they move in mysterious ways and, um, they, they just do their things when they feel like doing their things and there's not really a particular deadline for them to get it done. And so we just all
2: sit here and twiddle our thumbs. It's unfortunate that changing the topic away from the government brought us squarely back to the government. (laughs) 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 Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, If if, if any listeners uh, want to follow up for the mailbag episode, which is the next episode, our new colleague, Steve Hawley, is president of the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission and uh, and so we can ask him where that original perhaps this will be ready in 90 days uh, comment came from but we're gonna have to be prodded uh, in an email we we can't simply ask that question of him
3: he's so. going to be delighted when the uh, entire uh, of all the questions are just 50 listeners writing in being like so when is this happening though as if it's Steve who's holding this whole thing up. Like he's just like, oh, I'll get to it when I get to it. You know, New Year resolutions, <laughs> <meh>. <laughs> I,
2: I think it will be ratified before there's a worm tub episode of One Nation Under Whiskey. And there you go. I'm on the record oh, saying wow. that in my year in preview. Wow. wow. As the man who's not
3: on social wow. media, you have no idea what a dumpster fire you just caused by that You've one sentence. Absolutely, podcast this day, sir. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like the number one conspiracy hole in the single cast nation chat group is about the worm tub. You've set them off and you don't and you're laughing because you are not gonna take any responsibility for what you've just said, and you will continue to not be in the chat group and giving really zero fucks about the whole situation. Thanks.
2: <laughs> uh, I will I will say though, that smart listeners know to send email to info dot singlecastnation.com because they get me over there. And I have fielded worm tub uh episode questions through that medium but I do get to avoid the socials so I'm okay with that front.
3: oh listeners well you now know where to email Jason to get him um, about Wormtons
0: <laughs> all right so here we are it's it's the 15th of January 2024 we have oh man oh we've got an extra day this year I was trying to do the math there And I was going to say, we've got 350 days left. We have 351 days left in our year. What is peaking Susanna Skyver Barton's interest for for 2024?
1: One thing, you know, and this may not be for 2024, but it's certainly, I think, for the near future, is um, this phenomenon of big companies building big companies and smaller companies building or opening distilleries in China. Um, mm. You know what, what really I've been looking at, you know, it's like Pernod, uh, I think just released a whiskey Diageo's building a distillery. Um, but what really got my attention was when Angus Dundee was like, we're building a distillery in China. And I was like, Angus Dundee. You are? Mm. <laughs> I love Angus Sundy. I'm a huge Glen fan in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a really interesting, fun little company. Um, mm. And I have no insight into this, you know, th- this announcement that they're building a distillery in China. But I find it very interesting to consider what's on the minds of these companies. Are they um, building these distilleries just for the Chinese market? Do they think there is a, a demand or there will be a mm-hmm. demand in China for Chinese-made single malt and blended whiskeys? Mm. Um, do they think there will be an export demand as world whiskey becomes a, a larger category, although it's still, I think, extremely small in comparison to um, almost everything else? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, are they anticipating that there might be possible embargoes um, that China sets or tariffs. Mm. Um, I don't know if you guys pay any attention to the wine world, but a few years ago, China just all of a sudden, or seemingly all of a sudden to me as a non-wine observer, just very casual, um, they they came down with massive tariffs on Australian wine imports China was, I think, Australia's largest export market at the time. And, of course, Australian wine is a huge industry. So it it, um, created more than a kerfuffle. It was, I think, quite a crisis for a lot of um, Australian winemakers. And they've spent a few years sort of figuring out what to do about that. And the tariffs might have changed or been lifted. I, I haven't paid that much, as you can see, that much attention. But still, I think that was probably noticed by spirits producers, like, Look, China can mm-hmm. uh, they're a hu- They are a huge market, even if a tiny portion of people are drinking wine and spirits, um, they can come down with a with a tariff and that can make a huge difference to a company's plans to their bottom line. So oh, perhaps man. by building distilleries, producing whiskey and country, there's there's a way to get around that. I think a lot about, you know, it's, it's made me think about the model in India. India is a huge whiskey market, although much of the whiskey they consume is not whiskey by the rest of the world's standards in that it's made with um, ingredients other than grain. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, Diageo, Pernod, um, the big companies all have distilleries in country where they produce, they produce single malt. Um they produce they they may produce grain whiskey as well. Maybe not. They may still be using the just the the sugarcane based stuff. But regardless, they'll also import uh, blended um, scotch whiskey and blend it locally with the locally made single malt or other spirits. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really um, I think good model for them has worked pretty well so far because India has really high um, tariffs on imported spirits. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, another, again, another part of, of the the business that they've figured out how to make it work on this in-country production level. So bringing it back around to China, is this what they're thinking with China? Are we going to try an India model or are we just going to try to avoid the impact of potential tariffs or embargoes or, you know, the geopolitical situation could change. Um, and that, that could have massive ramifications as well. I mean, look at what happened with just Russia invading Ukraine, Um, no, none of these companies have distilleries in Russia, but it's still been a big disruption to their business. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, sure.
1: Have you had a chance to
3: try any Chinese whiskey?
1: I have not. I'm very interested to try it. Uh, I mean, as far as I know, there's only a couple of bottled products out there so far. Have you, Jess?
3: Yeah, I've had a bit of it. But um, I can't be mega helpful about it because I've only had it in the capacity of being a judge for the World Whiskey Awards. So obviously everything comes uh, blind. It's just a barcode. So there's nothing on it. Um, We only try according to set categories. So we had it, I think maybe before Christmas, I was in Norwich and we had maybe four or five of them. Um, (laughs) We had a long conversation amongst ourselves about it um, because they are... I would say, at least the ones I have tried, definitely not like Scotch. But then we had a conversation of like, well, maybe one, the producers aren't trying to make a Scotch whiskey. They're maybe focusing, mm. like you're saying, perhaps on a domestic product where the palate is very different to a Western palate. And a lot of the flavors that we were getting in the whiskeys we were trying are not things I would expect to be picking up out of anything out of Scotland, but maybe that's going to be the norm Hmm. for Chinese whiskey because why would they try and make it taste like Scotch whiskey if they don't have to? Hmm. Maybe we were were kind of speculating on the idea that what they're trying to produce is for a a market who maybe also wouldn't necessarily have tried Scotch whiskey. They're going to be more like Shochum, Bayou Drinkers, They're coming at it with a different palette and a different set of ways and traditions of drinking it. So when Chinese whiskey uh, becomes more of a product, maybe it's not going to look how we were talking about it. It could also be um, when I was talking to Christopher Coates, who heads up the awards, no, like a lot of the stuff that gets entered into the world whiskey awards can also be you know like small producers who are in countries like China who are maybe not necessarily traditional whiskey producers who are looking for critical feedback of their product so that they could try and then steer what they're doing towards um a particular profile or style so it was really interesting. I was very surprised when my uh, categories came up on one of the days that there was a bunch of chinese whiskey in it um I I'm going to be perfectly honest, I didn't really enjoy what I tried, but maybe that's because these are very early stage whiskies, and they're not trying to appeal to me as a drinker. They're not trying to target what I like and what I drink. But definitely definitely interesting, and it hadn't occurred to me to look at it like that. I had looked at it because the big names like Pernod and Diageo are involved. They were looking to set up whiskey distilleries, as I know of a whiskey distillery here in Scotland. But maybe they're not. I mean, a a distillery is really just a process plant. You can build that anywhere. So maybe it's about educating drinkers who are interested in what other countries are producing that it's not necessarily going to be what you're used to. And I think in Scotland, we're really spoiled with that. As Scotch drinkers, we expect when people call it whiskey from another country, they expect it to taste like something we have here when there's there's no real Mm. reason for it to taste like we have here. If you're a distillery in Timbuktu those people there like different flavours, so why would they want it to taste the same as it does in Scotland? So it's interesting, yeah, but my exposure, pretty limited.
2: I like your point there, Jess. One of the things that I think has carried the coverage of these new new distilleries is that stills are coming from Forsyth's. Mm. Distillery managers from Scotland are heading up projects over there. And I think maybe for us in the West, the feel was... Well, this seems like a very Scottish model that they're trying to establish over there. I I really like your point about other palates and other markets. Uh, and and on, on top of your point, Susanna, as well, you know, you could hit a very small percentage of Chinese whiskey drinkers or, or burgeoning whiskey drinkers and have an incredibly successful product on your hands as well that, the numbers that come out, and we've had that as well with India, you know, just simply a small percentage of that population would give you an incredible success. So it will be interesting to, to follow it, watch it, see where we go, see what assumptions we overcome, as we learn more about the products coming out. Yeah, and
3: I think it's not a surprise when you see, you know, the big names attached to doing projects in countries like this. But like you, Suzanne, I was mega surprised when I saw Angus Dundee were setting up. You know, like if you'd asked me to pick another um, largest uh, (laughs) company to be setting up in China, I think I could have given you 20 guesses before I got to Angus Dundee. Because in my mind, they're quite a traditional... um, Quite traditional and conservative in the way they conduct business at least here in the UK you know like they produce cracking liquid but they kind of do it pretty quietly there's a whole bunch of other mm-hmm. people that I would maybe have put a stab at being people that would set out in China before them but they obviously see the potential in the market for what they want to do so I'm really interested I think them more than anybody else to see why they've decided in a, in a time where it feels like everybody's opening in Campbelltown they were like hey let's just ship off to China and we'll uh' <laughs> Just set up in Campbelltown instead. Uh, China instead of Campbelltown, I should say. Too many
2: Cs. (laughs) Susanna, before we get too deep into 2024, actually, I want to give you a a big thank you and and pay due diligence here to what we established last year. We, you know, concluded our, our year six and we kicked off our year seven with such a focus on the environment. And such an attempt to move beyond greenwashing by brands, something we discussed at length this time last year. And it was fascinating to, to bring on people like David Thompson uh, from uh, Spirit of Yorkshire, mm-hmm. to bring on the Whiskey Supply Sisters uh, out of Colorado, you know, to actually talk about agriculture and actually get back to soil health and root structures. And we always referenced you and we always referenced that episode and we kept it fresh. Um, But on top of the environmental aspect, we also talked about women and whiskey and and talking about that in a meaningful way and trying to to lift up women when when presented with the opportunity, supporting women when presented with that opportunity. And so on one half, I wanna talk environment with you. On the other half, I want to circle back to an article that you wrote for Insider, which is you are a woman in whiskey, a, a whiskey writer, a whiskey taster, and yet you had a pregnancy where you're obviously not imbibing alcohol. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a bit about what that was like and the challenges of that and and what you learned coming out of that and what you'd like to do with that knowledge going forward
1: yeah um it was it was a weird 2023 because I did not drink for most of it um even I had my baby at the end of September and even then like as anyone with a new a newborn child can tell you you drinking alcohol is the last thing on your mind when you're sleep deprived (laughs) so (laughs) um (laughs) I've had a few nice whiskeys since then but uh but but my habits have, have changed maybe not permanently but certainly for now um you know as a woman who always knew i wanted to have a child i spent years thinking about how i could make it work with my job um Mm -hmm. how i could start trying to conceive a child without telling people because i i wanted to cut off alcohol you know from like the minute i could possibly be pregnant just just to be extra safe so working from home and working mostly for myself meant that was actually, you know, I, I solved that problem. I, cause I could just, if I had a zoom call where we were tasting a whiskey, I could just nose it and like, you know, pretend to take a sip and then put it down and no one would be, be any the wiser. Um, and when it came to, to tasting, doing tastings for reviews, um, you know, I just spat everything, which I was in the habit of doing mm-hmm. for the most part. Anyway, I would maybe Swa- take one swallow um for like sure. the full finish but as you guys know i would i think about 50 percent of my um impression of a whiskey comes in on the nose and then 40 mm-hmm. percent on the palate and then the finish is is at most 10 percent. i mean a bad finish can break a mm-hmm. whiskey and a great finish can bump it from like you know being really good to excellent mm-hmm. but um but I didn't feel I was missing that for the most part um, because, you know, my if anything, my ability to nose was even better than, you know, before I got <laughs> pregnant. So, so there uh, were ways to, to get around the, the, the mechanics of the job and be able to do it and not feel that I was doing a subpar version of it. Um, but the bigger issue for me was always, are people going to take me seriously as a person who's not drinking but who is mm. writing about whiskey and tasting whiskey and at times scoring and reviewing whiskey and that that's a, a an anxiety that i had and still kind of have mm-hmm. um you know because people are judgy even if they're not consciously judgy you see a woman with a big pregnant belly and she's got a bunch of bottles around her and some tasting glasses in front of her. And like, what do you think? You know, that immediately yeah. mm-hmm. some, probably some, some terrible thoughts, even if you don't mean to think them, yeah, sure. you know, and uh, being a writer, so much of my, my job depends on access, access to distillers, access to brands. I mean, I'm not ashamed to say I accept a lot of free samples. Otherwise, you know, I'd never be able to afford to buy these whiskeys, to write about them and and review them. Um, But I was worried that like that access would diminish because people would say, well, Oh, well, Mm -hmm. she's, she's had a baby. So she's not, she's not working like, or she's not doing what she used to do. She's not taking, you know, like we can sort of bump her down a little bit in terms Mm -hmm. of priority because, you know, I I was worried about being written off and I'm kind of still worried about that. It, It was interesting. I'm coming back from maternity leave. I took three months, which is pretty standard in America maybe even on the better side. Mm -hmm. But I was still checking my email the whole time. I was still corresponding when I needed to with people. And it's so funny. um, Apparently, some people just saw I was on maternity leave and stopped corresponding with me. You know, they stopped you know, it's just a matter Mm -hmm. of like, my email being included on a list to send out like, hey, here's some news. Um, And I'm like, someone mentioned, they're like, we'll put you back on our active list. And I'm like, I should have been on your active list this whole time just because I'm not responding. Doesn't mean I'm not reading or that I won't read it when I come back, but I need to, I, I want to know what's going on with the brands you represent. You know, I want, I need to know like, Oh, this person took a new job or, you know, this distillery has a new feature or whatever. Um, that, the, the, the world didn't stop spinning for me. Um, yeah. and, and yeah. Yeah. um, <laughs> you know, so, I can't fully articulate kind of what this means for me or like what, how, where I am with my anxieties. Cause you know, they're still very active, but I mean, the way I do my job has changed probably permanently. I do have a, a human being that's dependent on me now. I'm not going to jet off mm-hmm. at the drop of a hat. Not that I, not that I did that very often in the past, but, you know, there were a couple of <laughs> times where someone was like, you want to come do this thing and it's happening in two weeks. And I'm like, yes, not going to do that anymore. I'm going to, you know, going to need a little more notice. But I don't know. I think probably it's going to make me better at my job in the long run, too. I think when you open up a new life experience, whether that's having a child or moving to a new place or, you know, any of these kind of major things that happen to people in their lives or that they choose to do, Um that opens up new new elements of your your thinking new ways of looking at the world and so um if you're if you're conscious of that and you try to use that um then you know you can you can put it to good use in whatever your goals are that's kind of my
2: hope you alluded to it a second ago but just to to return to it uh, we talked in the last uh, recording about you making the full-time move to North Carolina and you just mentioned a moment ago about working from home and kind of controlling what what's coming in and out of your home do you think if you'd still been in New York you'd have been able to pull off the this I don't want to say secret <laughs> in a bad way but when you were trying to keep it in house could you have pulled off pregnancy in the same way or the, the attempts
1: I think it would have you know, been harder getting pregnant in the same it way? would have been harder a lot of what I did in New York was very public I would go to events and you know oh, hobnob sure. with people and if I had just stopped drinking all of a sudden definitely would have been noticeable and a lot of people a lot of people are very polite and do not ask which is good. You should never ask somebody why they are not drinking alcohol. It's none of your business. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. it could have nothing. You know, could be a medical reason or any other reason. Don't worry about it. Focus on yourself. But <laughs> but still, I'm sure some people would have asked me, and I don't know what you know. What <laughs> last year it was about this time where I was you know like you know early stages of pregnancy and. Um, I was like, I'm doing dry January. You know, like I visited a distillery and they're like, we're going to do a, a gin and cheese tasting for you. And I'm like, that's great. I'm going to need a spit cup. I'm doing dry January, <laughs> you know? And then like, after that, I was just like, oh, I'm not drinking today. You know, like you can make things up. <laughs> oh, I'm on antibiotics. But, um, and I did, I mean, I look, any women out there listening yeah. who need to conceal their pregnancy in a, an alcohol setting, you just feel free to get in touch. I have lots of ideas. I have lots of tried and true tips. You know, if you just keep a glass in your hand, nobody is going to ask you why you're not drinking. The, the liquid in that glass never has to go down. You're just like, oh, I'm just holding a glass and like socializing with people. Great. You're, you're drinking, even if you never once take a sip. Take it to the bathroom, pour a little out. Boom. Um, yeah, I don't know if it would have been <clears throat> possible in the same way. You know, I, I I I would have had to change my habits and behaviors um, if I wanted to sort of keep it under wraps until I was ready to share it with with people publicly. So what a yeah, great question. <laughs> right, it, men never have to think about no, this. I think about all my all the other um, whiskey writers that I know who I would sort of say you know like have a similar. Uh, job to mine in the sense of, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. work for themselves, maybe do this and, that you know, freelancing and like, you know, almost every single one of them is male. And a lot of them are dads, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, and, and Mm -hmm. they, and I've known them for years and they might, you know, they would go to fewer events than the single people or they would leave early so they could go pick up their kids, stuff like that. I mean, there's, there's considerations for dads too, but they're not quite as encompassing um, in those physical ways uh as they as they are for moms or for the the people who carry the pregnancy
0: wow there you go
1: (laughs) (laughs) no regrets by the way like i'm very happy uh to have my baby and uh and be working in whiskey and being able to have both of those things i i think i'm very lucky i think there are a lot of people for whom it would be not as possible um, but I talked to a lot of female distillers who have kids about it too. Mm. And they are, you know, they've made, mm-hmm. they've been great examples. Marianne Eves, she has two daughters. She was, you know, actively working as a blender when she was pregnant. Uh, Elizabeth McCall at Woodford Reserve. You know, there are several other women who work in the spirits space, you know, who have done this. And so that gave me a lot of encouragement uh, when making the decision to to go forth and try to have a baby.
2: and congratulations from all of us before I return the floor to my to my honourable colleagues and Joshua (laughs) I was going to easy peasy I was I, was, I just want to circle back to the other part of my, my question there, which is how do you think environment went in 2023 within whiskey circles? Do you think there was a, a more concerted effort to discuss it in real terms? Do you think we started moving away from some of the, the politicalization of the topic? Um,
1: it's a great question. Uh, what, what do I, I don't look? know that it made much progress in the American space. Um, I continue mm-hmm. to see scotch whiskey company is talking about uh what they're doing um but a thought occurred to me this year that was like well they do have a political mandate in scotland right and Jesse, please correct me if i'm wrong um to to either reach carbon neutral or or there, there there are these um carbon goals that have to be achieved by a certain year i'm gonna say it's 2030 but i'm not yeah, yeah I'm definitely it's,
3: it's soonish but not like next year i think oh, some of them i'm not overly confident we're gonna reach but yeah there's I th- okay there's a lot more drive towards it um there's a lot of drive within europe as well um to do with the same and it's funny because we you know we did a little thing where we left europe but we've decided that we quite like some of their ideals <laughs> and environmentalism seems like one of them i'm not sure i'm i'm still s- quietly skeptical that there's a lot of people talking about these things because it sounds like them we're doing something right and um mm-hmm. but the distilleries mm-hmm. that i know here who are you know i think across the board in scotland we've always been very aware of it um maybe maybe distilleries are more aware of you know weather fluctuations and how that impacts their processes so what can they do if you know like water is a big topic so how do you make sure that you are sourcing your water responsibly which also can be a shorthand for making sure you've always got water like if you've ever been on isla um, when it's particularly sunny, um, you'll hear a lot of distillery managers talking about, like, phew, you know, the, the water's getting low up in the hills and, you know, maybe we'll have to shut down production a little bit. I remember one of the um, festivals that I was over for an isla at and, um, when Georgie was still the manager there, they were talking about how low the water in the burn was and she said, like it's getting critical, we're going to have to cut production because we literally don't have enough water if it doesn't rain. And I had laughed because I was like, well, that's an mm-hmm. odd complaint to have on Isla, you know, like wishing for rain is not a thing we mm-hmm. often do on the west coast of Scotland. Um, but she was saying yeah, it can be. And I know a lot of the space side <laughs> distilleries have the same too in the summer when the water is low, that's when a lot of them traditionally will shut for maintenance. Um, and it allows the distillery to do other things. But if you've got a, an increased pressure on you to keep the, the outturn up, then You know, not having water isn't a good thing. And I think also with a lot of distilleries that are in more remote locations, they're thinking about the impact on the environment. So, like, I think Ardnamerican are phenomenal champions for how they are very considerate in the environment and how it tempers what they do. So I I feel like distilleries are Mm -hmm. taking it very seriously. I think maybe consumers are a little bit kind of more... mm, Uh, sceptical as if it is a a form of greenwashing but I think if you know for these businesses it's a very real thing especially if there are hard deadlines where they're going to be expected to be complying with these um uh, regulations that are coming in sorry the listeners can't hear that Jason is like waiting to put a very good point but in doing so his thumbs come up and he's got like a load of thumbs up on the screen
2: it's great (laughs) <laughs> Do you not oh, say did that? It? Oh, did I, I didn't yeah, you? That's yeah, right. that. I'm I sorry. That's... Oh, sorry. Okay, I will sit quietly with my hands in my pockets. <laughs> so your point, Jason, <laughs> is I was just to, to to both points being made here. That's why, just personally, in, in in our interviews, I didn't really want to go down a packaging path. I wanted to get back mm. to snow packed on Speyside Mountains, right, and the water that's running out on Isla, and the seed that's going into the soil, right. I, I wanted very tangible, real aspects of this because I, I agree with you that I think the consumer is in a bit of an eye roll stage. And, and I feel like we had the same conversation this time last year. Although... It's interesting I, I just saw Diageo talking about replacement packs like well, almost the the wine in a bag uh, wine in a box kind of the, the bag that's in that. and and I feel like when Diageo are talking about something remarkably unsexy, right? <laughs> you just go to a store, you buy your replacement bag, you stick that in the bottle that's in your house. Like That's when I feel like we're starting to move beyond greenwashing and we're actually on real solutions that are hard to market. It's more of a, if you want to get it on board with a better planet, you'll go and buy the unsex bag. And then they'll start putting remarkable designs on the bag and they'll take on a life of their own. But, but I, I wonder if, could that be an in for the American side of this? Susanna, or are you a little more worried about where the in might lie
1: uh that could be i think that yes the challenge is getting people to buy a replacement bag to go in a bottle i mean part of what an issue in america that the uk doesn't have is um our just very different alcohol regulation and and the fact that we have got 51 different sets of laws here for each state and dc and um and having like refill refillable packaging would be impossible here as the laws are currently Uh, written. Like it's literally, um, Mm. it's literally banned. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I had this conversation with someone at Nuknian and I'm ashamed that to say I've forgotten her name, but she's, um, in charge of, you know, some of their environmental, uh, it wasn't, no, it was not Annabelle. It was one of, one of her staff, but, um, and this was a couple of years ago, so okay.
0: I'll you know. stop throwing names.
1: It's you. fine, <laughs> but I, but I said you know we we were talking a lot about the environmental aspect because of course Nakhni they're right up there, very near mm-hmm. um, very concerned with with uh, being carbon neutral. I think they might even be like uh, they're beyond net zero. What do we call it when you're you're returning that carbon negative? Um, so, carbon so negative, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, and packaging is a big concern for them because bottles are heavy. Shipping bottles takes a lot of energy and they hadn't quite figured out, you know, they had some ideas that they thought they might trial with, you know, small set of consumers, but they hadn't quite figured it out either. And and I think Mm -hmm. that is going to be a really tough nut to crack, but good on Diageo for working on cracking it. I I imagine other companies are, are doing so probably not with the same urgency, And yeah, again, I think in the U S it's just a much less, as Jess pointed out, it's just a much less, um, visible issue. People, Mm -hmm. I don't want to say care less, but I think they might care less. Um, I think, I certainly think a lot of American (laughs) whiskey drinkers are not buying or thinking about buying whiskey based on environmental considerations, but this kind of ties in a little bit with something I did want to bring up. Um, that is relevant to everyone on this call, which, which is this trend that has been building for a few years. And I think is, is maybe moving and getting some more momentum of, um, Scotch single malt distilleries, particularly bringing back old ways of doing things, um, such as floor maltings, such as mm-hmm. longer fermentations, mm-hmm. such as even direct fire stills in the case of Glen Geary and whether or not, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, they're do they're bringing back these old ways for flavor creation which is paramount in great Mm -hmm. scotch whiskey but i wonder and i don't know the answer to this question i wonder if some of those ways are also uh, more environmentally friendly i tend to think maybe not because scale (laughs) you know tends to you know as you as you go up the the impact per unit is goes down but but I could be—I could be wrong. At least in the case of you know, perhaps with if floor maltings, if the grain is just coming from the field next door, like it is at Kilhomem, you know that that does seem th- like it would be
0: yeah, fairly
1: low impact, minus the the amount of energy you're literally the the, the peat or other you know um, material that you're burning to to dry that grain. But um, I don't know if you guys you know have have thoughts on this, whether environmentally minded or just about this trend in general about this refocus on creating flavor in the old ways so
3: i i have a kind of point that's before you there's two points stay with me on this journey uh so talking of doing old and new mixing them together i'm i have a real love for harris distillery and everything they're doing um my grandparents have done harris And so I've been watching very carefully what this distillery have been doing for a long time. And when they started out doing the gin in anticipation of the whiskey coming out, um, one of the releases they, and they always talk about, they're very heavily invested in community and the effects of... Um, hard living on the islands especially remote islands like harris and lewis what that does to a community one of the things that they have started doing and they dropped them this christmas and last christmas they've worked with a ceramicist who has created these really cute little like half bottles Mm. they're all hand thrown and that's to do with this old-fashioned idea of you took a drink to somebody's party to share with you And I quite like that they're selling this for the gin with, they're doing aluminium recyclable packaging. The idea being that instead of, I'm sure everybody Mm. listening has seen a Harris gin bottle, if not, head to your Google machines. They're very beautiful, but they're quite heavy. And obviously there's an environmental impact there of the glass. And so one of the things that I think Harris have been quite canny in recognising is that you're probably going to get through a bottle of gin faster than you, probably would a bottle of whiskey I'm just putting it out there Um, and so they sell this like aluminium same material as your can of whatever Dr Pepper, Sprite, Coke Uh, and they have a bottle so they're encouraging you to keep hold of the beautiful glass bottle and then uh, refill it with this aluminium paired in with this idea of they were calling them the Cayley bottles that you would take them to kind of this old new crossover Mm -hmm. and it's like recycled marketing which I think is quite fun um, I'm not sure really I've heard Harris talking mm-hmm. as heavily about envirom- environmental impacts as to what they're doing as, say, Nacneen. And I do know Nacneen looked at packaging. They talk a lot about um, the recycled glass in their bottles. And again, their bottles are really beautiful. What could you do with them instead of just throwing them away, I guess, at the end? But I I, I do think your idea of like these old... Um, like very can we call it like kind of farmhouse stillings distilling styles this idea of like very rustic very basicy you know like floor moltings floor molting your own barley from that field there out of the window to uh running your stills direct fire i i wonder if like old is the new new i'm not sure how you can tie that in because <laughs> i always has I would been have thought Uh, the the kind of progression towards more modern distilling would allow for more efficiencies where maybe more efficient equals less energy used. And if you are slow running stills, longer fermentation, you're not using more energy. But I know that lots of these distilleries are also looking to offset that with some sort of like green energy on site, whether that's maybe you've got a turbine um, or some sort of, um, you know, like roof paneling, like solar panels. Or using water for your source of energy, loving like hydroelectricity, maybe that comes into it too. It definitely is something you hear a lot of distillers talking about this. I don't know. I, yeah, I think maybe we're selling this I, concept a little bit too hard of like the old styles equals better. And I think that's a very dangerous path to get down. <laughs> like, oh, we're doing it like they used to do in the 1800s when we were distilling in the hills. And you know we were hiding from the excise men. Yeah, we were also making a lot of really shonky alcohol that made people go blind. I'm not sure we need to go
0: like <laughs> back back. But are but are we really? You know, I, I think I think there's a handful of small distilleries that that have production that is sub one million liters per year that are really such a small part and parcel of the overall industry. To have them shout about it is a really good thing from a visibility standpoint, and and you hope that it sends messages to the consumers. You hope that it sends messages to other distilleries. But I I think for this to really matter, it's got to be the the, the Glen Fittix and the Glenlivets, and and then on top of that, your Invergordon's of the world, your Laws of the world. That are these massive facilities producing millions and millions and millions of liters to really make the the sort of impact that these smaller companies, smaller, louder companies, are are touting. You know, they're they're doing their own part and that's awesome, but it really has to bleed over into the producer that's making whiskey for the masses and, and not for the folks like us.
1: Well, and that brings us back to these, uh, you know, these goals, these carbon, these environmental goals, right? That are that that have deadlines for UK distilleries, and Jess said she's perhaps dubious that they'll all be met, but but they're certainly mm. supposed to be met, and the companies that are touting, oh, we've put in our solar array, or oh, we're doing this, or you know, whatever. I mean. Are they doing it because um, it's the right thing to do? Or are they doing it because they'll be fined if they don't? Does it matter? <laughs> maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah. And yeah, and maybe this farmhouse style distilling is is a, a red herring in in all of this. But I do think it's important for consumers in terms of discussing, um, you know, what makes the whiskey that we enjoy. What what are the what makes that right. And is it, Mm. and it shouldn't, the scale shouldn't matter. But if we're talking about fermentation, that is a crucial part of, you know, making up the, the flavor of the whiskey we enjoy.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, floor maltings may or may not be, I'm not totally, you know, I'm not sold that like floor malted barley tastes better than barley that's been malted in an industrial setting (laughs) um it's it's less consistent so it's creating more interesting flavor perhaps interesting um -hmm. i don't know Mm -hmm. you know and there's not and direct fire stills same thing they're not it's not a consistent heat source and so you're making spirit that um that takes more Uh, I don't know. Work on the part of the distiller, and then later the blender to to turn it into the the bottled product that everyone's going to know and love. But I've, I've totally lost my where I was going with this. Except to say, I think this conversation, seeing this conversation happen in Scotch whiskey, is exciting, and I think perhaps we can take give a little credit to the American craft whiskey movement because they started that conversation in this country. Yeah. That, is, that has now for sure spread to the bigger bourbon um, producers. And American whiskey drinkers now um, are asking questions about grain source, about, uh, you know, t- of course, time and barrel. Everyone's been asking that forever. But, mm-hmm. but they're asking questions about these sources of flavor um, that uh, 10 years ago, I don't think w- was crossing anyone's mind. And maybe that's not the case in Scotch. It could have certainly could be developing independently, but I think it's, I think it's ultimately a good thing for drinkers and for the industry to have consumers engaged with that element of the whiskey to where, you know, a generation or two ago, they were concerned about uh, what a particular bottle, you know, picking that off the shelf, how that made them look as a consumer Rather than whether or not you know the taste was was something that really appealed to them or or was special or different, and mm-hmm. now with this proliferation of, of brands across all categories, you know consumers are like, oh no, I should actually be thinking I should be drinking what I like and, and finding out why I like it. You know, we're very curious, questioning um, mm-hmm. the source of 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 that flavor and that whiskey, and and maybe eventually that does extend to the environmental aspect of it. It's like, okay, now I've figured out where the flavor comes from, but how is it getting like what goes into making it? Is that responsible? Is it ethical? Should I be, Hmm. you know, thinking about that as well, the same way I think about my my farmhouse eggs and my pasture raised beef?
2: Exactly.
1: I know we talked about this last year. I do feel like I'm repeating myself, but
2: um Yeah, no (laughs) no, I'm 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 nodding my head vigorously because I agree with you where I think part of this needs to come from the consumer, but I also think there's a large part for the consumer, which is make something that I like and I'm going to trust you to make sure you're doing it in the right way, right? Like, I'm not going to be standing over you asking about, you know... kilojoules right (laughs) like like, do any of us know enough about energy to actually be asking smart questions about producers and are you saving energy in that way we're just going to trust that you are and maybe if you are you can crow about that and it'll help me buy and feel good about what I'm buying from you so so yeah I'm I'm just nodding my head vigorously speaking of kilojoules um, no I'm joking (laughs)
0: <laughs> Speaking of kilojoules, I mean, you say that every episode. <laughs> um, I I had another question of a, of an aspect of whiskey production that, that is tied very closely to the environment. And then I had a, a question about consumer purchasing habits, but th- we'll go to that second. So one of the things that I found, the more Scotch whiskey producers that I talked to Their access to ex bourbon barrels has has gotten difficult. Um, You know, Buffalo Trace has cut off supply to distilleries like Kilhoman and and some other distilleries where they would sell directly. In part, because you know maybe they own other distilleries that they can lend that cask to, right? You know, a little Mm -hmm. a little vertical integration.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have Um, an Irish distillery now.
0: Right. And, and so, you know, and you can say that about a number of other major distilleries that that have a, a parent company, right, that own a multitude of distilleries and they're keeping things in house while at the same time, you know, the and, and we touched touched on it earlier in this conversation, the craze for bourbon doesn't seem to have died. It continues to tick along which means we continue to cut down trees to make new bourbon barrels. And I remember hearing some time ago, and, and it could just be people throwing out what ifs, but you know there was conversations of, boy, this is a lot of wood that's being cut down. Uh, if we remember just a couple of years ago, we, we ran into issues where small craft producers had to wait for their wood. For, for you know a multitude of reasons. At what point do we try to think about the environment a bit more and maybe cut down less wood and adjust our laws as to what can and cannot be called bourbon or, or how do we adjust <laughs> legal <laughs> definitions so that we're maybe being more conscious of the wood that we've already harvested it can reuse it properly in the way that malt whiskey producers can use it. Much more no,
1: that that will never happen for bourbon. I'll tell yeah. you. I will tell you what will happen first. What will happen first is um, Hell, we'll the the mind. world will <laughs> burn. No, the 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 lumber industry, which currently encompasses you know oak for bourbon barrels, oak for furniture, oak for home building, whatever construction. I I think. The industry will you'll you'll see maybe see some specialized um companies pop up that are just going to be doing oak for bourbon barrels. I don't know enough about this industry by the way to to give more detail than that, but I think that's what sure. would happen first right? right they They would be able to you know they they know who to work with the the mills and the and the loggers and everything to to cut down you know smaller patches of trees like someone owns some land and they're like, "I got a bunch of oak trees uh you know. Can I make some money mm. off of them? And they're like, yes, you can. We're going to give you this much, you know, per square foot of uh, usable lumber, and mm-hmm. you know, boom, get it done. You know, the industry right now, I, as I understand it, is pretty. It's pretty macro, um, and mm. uh, and so I think we'll see it become more more mic- We'll see more micro um, suppliers, let's say, yeah. pop up to serve those needs. Of course, it's going to make barrels more expensive. They've already been getting more expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. welcome to the world of, (laughs) uh, you know, exploiting natural resources and Mm -hmm. not necessarily replenishing them Mm -hmm. adequately. Of course, you know, credit to many of the big bourbon companies, They, they are actively engaged with forestry initiatives, with um, studying white oak, with replanting. They understand that that's important to their future health, but trees take decades to grow. So it's not as if it's going to create a solution in our lifetimes. Um, What I think you will also see is sourcing white oak from other parts of the world. Um, American white oak is very good for making barrels. Um, it's used not just in this country, but uh, in wine, winemaking and, and other spirits all over the world. But I don't think it's necessarily the only, not the be-all, end-all. You know, there are trees everywhere. So are we going to see logging in Eastern Europe or um, in parts of Asia? I'm sure we will. I'm sure uh, that will happen. And that might change the way the bourbon tastes. Um, depending on you know the conditions those trees are grown in and whether they're processed where they are logged and, and seasoning yeah. and everything else. But you will see that happen. You'll see the oak coming from somewhere else before you will ever see the law change in this country that bourbon must be aged in a new charred oak barrel.
2: Interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, I like it. That is written down in the notes. Return to yeah, this point I always Boy, felt like awesome. it was probably like more that. of
3: a political decision rather than an environmental one that drove the bourbon laws. Mm. I have to say, this side of the pond, every so often you'll be at a distillery and they'll, you know, and we get to uh, listeners have heard me before talking about my distillery bingo card that I play when I'm touring distilleries. We get to the bit where we talk about casks and I'm like, okay, there's like three possible points we can tick off here. One is always how very, very expensive sharing casks is. <laughs> And inevitably, I would say maybe half of the time, the dis- whoever's doing the tour will, of course, make a throwaway comment being, you know, bourbon barrels are so cheap because the Americans only use them once. And that's great for us because we get them for super cheap. And then they will kind of like pull the rug from under you and they'll say, but they are talking about reusing those barrels. So it might not always be this way. And I think I just don't think the logging industry in the US is going to allow that to happen anytime soon. I think it's a rumor that goes around every so often. You know, there's one of these, oh, that's it, the bourbon industry are going to start reusing their casks. But I th- I think these are one oh, of these like, was, little kind yeah. of tremors that come without the real kind of context, which is there's this absolute mega giant running the background. There's a talk about it, sure. But like you say, that would mean that the timber industry, in theory, would lose a load of business, which, given how big it is in the US, I just don't see that happening Mm -hmm. i don't see it being like yeah so this week lads we've decided we're going to reuse all the casks starting next month and um sorry scotland it's been a great ride but thanks for coming along like i think what will happen is supply chains get cut like we're seeing with Kilhoman losing their uh, buffalo trace contract and having to switch to using another distillery and we are and i've heard the Kilhoman guys saying we're not really gonna know what effect that has on Kilhoman for like a good three four five ten years when they've built it into and they've run out of the the buffalo trace in their mix Mm. I, i think that's a much bigger possibility is that these distilleries are not going to get access to these casks instead of it being like environmental
1: and i don't know if we talked about this last year or not but um cask rinsing has already started impacting scotch whiskey maturation did we, t- did we talk about this where, okay. Yeah, it doesn't ring a bell. Bur- bourbon distillers. Um, this is a thing that's happened before, but it apparently is happening with a, with at greater scale. Now yeah. they are um, emptying their casks and instead of shipping them right off to whoever you know has purchased them, they are um, putting in another gallon or two of water, either leaving them in a hot warehouse for a few weeks or maybe deliberately heating them up. And then, Taking out that water, which has now pulled out uh, a lot more, you know, the, as the wood yeah. has expanded under heat, it's released the bourbon that was trapped in it. And they're using that to proof down, you know, whiskeys. And that changes the character of the cask that is then filled with new spirit in Scotland. And it changes the way mm-hmm. that spirit matures. And that, I think, is certainly already having an impact. I, I did write an article about it. I, I don't want to talk about my own writing, but like I did write an no, article please. about it in 2020. It might have been early 2023 or late 2022, but it was I John Glazer was a was a primary source on it because he was the one who clued me into this because he created a compass mm-hmm. box expression called Orchard House based on the fact that he had all this spirit that had matured in these rinsed bourbon casks and it tasted very different from what he had initially expected. So he was like, okay, I've got all the spirit. What do I do with it? Okay. New blend. And it's a delicious blend. You know, that's, that's one uh, sort of additional layer on this as well. um, Is that the quality of the casks that Scotch whiskey distilleries are receiving now could be, and in some cases certainly is very different from what they were getting even a few years ago.
0: Yeah. I, I seem to recall having a conversation with, uh, with our friend David Sturk years back when he had uh, the Creative Whiskey Company, and there were some casks he was pointing out that had the distillery had their liquid in Jim Beam casks, and he said, I'm going to be sitting on these casks for a while because these Jim Beam casks are doing nothing. Since they've been doing the devil's cut process to the barrels, it's the spirit isn't in, interacting with the wood in the way that it was. So I'm just going to be sitting on this. And I think mm-hmm. that's a, a similar, if if not the same process, a similar process. It's the process same, yeah. That, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go.
3: That's really interesting. Do you think that's because there's an increase now? Certainly distilleries talk a lot more about casks coming in whole, or sometimes we hear people talking about shipping them wet. Mm. Um Whereas traditionally, I guess, the casks were broken down into just big bundles of staves and then reassembled this side of the pond once they got here. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's also... Because I've often wondered about that. When I've been to, like, space side like Cooperage and you watch them, it's really impressive. You watch them build them up from, like, you know, these bits of cask and they re-put them back together. I mean, there's absolutely zero guarantee there that the cask that comes out of space like Cooperage is made from the staves that were once a cask in the US. It could be the constituent parts of, well, essentially every stave from a different cask.
0: Yeah, franken casks. Yeah,
3: and I I think that's kind of interesting. So, and there's definitely a conversation happening here this in Scotland about, you know, if you're sourcing casks whole, that that's a premium thing, that's a luxury because you're shipping huge volumes mm. of air instead of filling a container with staves and then having a a really cool bunch of highly skilled coopers knock up the casks this side of the pond so you know if you're a distillery who's bringing in whole casks from uh you know these producers in the us that you can even name you know because oh this is a jim beam cask this is a a willet cask this is a whatever that's traditionally seen as like a like a step up in your bourbon sourcing i must admit like i haven't Hmm. i've not really thought about the idea of like you're calling it the devil's cut that's kind of the reverse of what we talk about in Harass as casks are not really traditional sherry casks anymore. They are kind of that in reverse. We're putting liquid in for them to flavor the casks and then we're bringing them in. It seems pretty Mm -hmm. mad that in America you're doing the well. I guess, why not Why not get as much out of your one cask as you can? Is that maybe slightly more environmental? Because if you can only use a cask mm. once, you're absolutely maximizing every last drip you can get out of that cask. You guys are being environmentally friendly. You've just not considered it like that. Look
0: at us. <laughs> <Yeah>. USA. <laughs>
3: Look
0: at you go. USA. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, too,
1: we are, I, I, I believe, and again, um, please go read my article because that, well, that's the truth. And whatever I say here, if I'm wrong, Whatever the article says is right. I've just forgotten. But I believe John Glazer is, is in fact um, seasoning, seasoning casks, right? To, to recreate or to get to the kind of flavor, seasoning bourbon, bourbon casks, I should say, and I'm air quoting bourbon mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. to get to the kind of flavor he wants to achieve in, in his um, mature spirit. And I do think we will, we will see that happening um, in Scotch whiskey, maybe not at scale yet. But, um, it's happened. you know, it's happened with Sherry. I don't, I don't see why it couldn't happen with bourbon. If those casks are not giving up the correct flavors that, that distillers want for their products, you know, they might just have to start bringing in or creating their own bourbon like spirit and, uh, and letting it sit there and, and wow. season the cask for a year or two.
2: But imagine if we end up seeing the same process for two opposite reasons: sherry because there is no industry, and bourbon too because there's industry. too high demand on it. Yeah, <laughs> like, but we end up seasoning well, on both. of that where
1: we just migrate the 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 flavors of of these you know mainstream whiskeys or all you know all Scotch whiskeys right that rely on this. If it becomes why wi- a very widespread problem, just migrate those flavors slowly, and and the palate yeah. accepts it. And in yeah. 20 years' time, you know, Glenlivet tastes a little different, maybe a lot different. I mean, that's uh, – thus it ever was with whiskey, you know, yeah. as much as they, they like to – and I'm sure – I hope this is on your bingo card, Jess. You know, it's like, oh, we've been using the same water and recipe for 150 years. And, you know, this is <laughs> – Johnny Walker's never change or, you know, whatever. It's like, eh, no. That's definitely, <laughs> Just to taste an jokes. example from within our own lifetimes – you know, yeah. and it's a very different whiskey. So That's great. That's a great yeah, way that's... to feed
3: the conspiracists, though. You know, <laughs> I, I've <laughs> never... Have you ever met somebody who's poured you uh, whiskey that's in, like, an old example and a new example and been like, the newer one, absolute belter, brilliant. Old one, load of shite. I'm so glad we don't have this anymore because there <laughs> are so, so few examples I could give you where you pour an older so one and few. everyone's like, oh, oh, oh no. Oh, you know, like, literally, (laughs) I've done tastings where we did, like, a kind of old versus new, and I'm telling you, new did not come out good. We did, like, old Johnny Walkers from Mm. the 1940s. Johnny Walker Red from the 40s and 50s is absolutely delicious. And we put Uh it next to a modern Johnny Walker Red, and we were like, sorry, guys, just going to pour this. You you don't have to drink it. Just have a little sniff. (laughs) Sorry. You know, I guess without context, if you have no context for the, the new and improved distillery Glen blah blah that's brilliant but there's always going to be some asshole whiskey drinker who is going to bring you out the 80s the 60s version of that and then you're like Hmm. oh what did we lose (laughs) yeah and i
1: well here i will give you the example old four roses is garbage because it was a blended whiskey modern four roses is amazing because jim rutledge revived it and made it a straight bourbon again in the early 2000s and it's fucking phenomenal magic
0: yep Yep. Okay, Without good. We doubt. need more of these
3: Without examples because uh, there's not many of them in the <laughs> Scotland. I,
0: I think another another fair one is is just the transition from sherry being exported into the UK in cask to the Spanish government saying no, sherry needs to be bottled in Spain uh, sometime in the 70s, right? And and so now the access to ubiquitous sherry casks went down sometime in the 70s and then in the 80s people stopped drinking sherry so there was just fewer casks and so you you got to see sherry casks slowly being transitioned out more bourbon casts slowly being transitioned in so back to your point Susanna, of this you know let's stretch it out a little bit whiskey is a product that takes time to mature so you can you can make those transitions in a in a slower, more um, uh, purposeful manner.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, 2011, 2012, I put old Bunahavan 12 up against new Bunahavan 12, the old Lechig up against the new Lechig. New stuff far outstripped Yeah, oh, um, that's true. In those particular examples, which is why I'm not saying spirit writ large, since I have... Uh, early 21st century Le Chig sitting uh, three feet away from me. So. And I know Bonahaven is a fan of, of somebody yeah, else I'd, in this I'm, conversation. So. Um,
3: I would also say there's a noticeable improvement on Beaumont. I can tell you the years, you know, like everything post 96, there's a radical difference in that decade of Beaumont going into the 90s and Beaumont coming out of the 90s. And I think that Beaumont is doing some really cool stuff. So yeah, I'm... I, I think it's... It's also about catering for people's tastes, isn't it? And it's very easy once you've got a long way down the rabbit mm-hmm. hole to long for the glory days of the old sherry. But if we're trying to get, you know, access for people coming in to drinking whiskey, then I, I think it's radically unfair to be beating people who are coming in with a stick that's like, this all used to be so much yeah. better. Like, well, great. Yeah. You know, like yeah, I'm one, 100%. i am permanently devastated that I was not born in an era where 1960s art bags were available on a shelf for three and six. And, you know... Because realistically, even if I had been in that era, I wouldn't have the appreciation for it. And it would be expensive compared to going out and buying a bottle of Grants or something else. You know, it was always a luxury product. It's just that when you look at it with 2024, got that right, 2024 eyes, it changes <laughs> nice pause. It changes your um, aspect. But yeah, as somebody coming into whiskey, it, it's I'm, I'm always really... I try really hard to make sure that it's not uh, a <laughs> if you'd been here 10 years ago <sighs> wait I could have shown you some stuff because that's not going to encourage people yeah. to drink whiskey and really at the end of the day that's the purpose of why the four of us are sat here is because we want to share drams and mm-hmm. share experiences so yeah and I'm, as always with whiskey it's kind of half in half out you can argue both ways I think you know the old stuff was pretty cool and I like to go back to your earlier point the idea of maybe we are looking now that we understand oh, well, if we have a longer fermentation, this is the effect it has on the spirit coming off the still well. We seem to quite like that flavour, let's build that in. Now that we have a bit of a deeper understanding, rather than it being, we did a longer fermentation because it was over the weekend and nobody worked on a Sunday, so it didn't get sorted till a Monday. Mm -hmm. That maybe we can use our slightly more educated uh, palettes to build in flavours. I think that's something that's much... More likely to come in whiskey that because we understand how to create these flavors rather than them kind of being an accident, you know that they having mm-hmm. a much deeper understanding in how to get a waxy texture in a whiskey or a i don't know funkier fruitier new make that maybe that's what we 'll see more of in our coming lots of distilleries as they're penciling what to do this year
0: I wanted to change. Topics slightly, and I realize you know you've got a limited amount of time, Susanna. So, so maybe it'll be this question, and maybe another one. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. We, you have your clock, and we want to make sure you get out of get out of the house when you need to. I was thinking about consumer purchasing habits, and you know, going through the pandemic that we went through, consumer purchasing habits uh, changed dramatically. People were buying all of the things because that's all they could do. But I'm not sure they drank all the things that they purchased because come 2023 globally it seems the overall sale of of whiskeys be it american whiskey or or malt whiskeys has has changed people are buying one bottle rather than two bottles or you know what what have you they're going on vacation maybe rather than you know, per, now that COVID's over and 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 things like that, and and I'm curious what what you may be seeing on that front. Um, have have you seen that slow down? And is there anything that you can specifically attribute it to, or you know, even you know, by by word of mouth and, and people talking what they're seeing? And do you see a way out of it, where maybe well, purchasing I- get.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think you're, you're thinking like a person who um, saw good sales during COVID and is now seeing them slow down. That's I don't think there's I'm any yeah. getting out of it. I think, <laughs> I think that was a blip. Um, yeah. It wouldn't have happened without the fact that we had a pandemic where people were stuck at home and had no way to spend their money except to buy things, mm. including whiskey. And so they did. And then once they had other outlets for their money, it started to slow. And that's just like, I don't mm-hmm. think we're, if you want to get back to that, then we're looking at another pandemic and nobody wants that. It's just, it's a stabilization. I, I don't mm-hmm. see what I do see is some price softening. Like, like people are very, are becoming more price sensitive now mm-hmm. um, partly perhaps because they have other things to spend their money on. And partly because we've had some inflation, mm-hmm. um, and, and and in the case of bourbon, I think partly, maybe, maybe largely because there's a lot of like overpriced bottles that yeah. are just that are priced higher than what they're worth. And so the market is sorting that out by people not buying mm. them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's just things are things are shifting back to the trajectory they were on pre-pandemic or maybe maybe slightly improved right because um mm. if when people bought extra whiskey or better whiskey than they were used to they were exposed to uh new brands or bottles that they said oh i really like this So okay, i'm gonna buy it again in the future And they're just buying one instead of two because they don't feel, remember we were all stockpiling (laughs) toilet paper we we were, you know, that mindset carried over into the whiskey. I got a stockpile of whiskey. And now that sense of crisis has passed and, and people are like, "Eh, I don't need to, you know what? Like I, I'm going to buy a bottle, but I'm going to use the money from that would have gone to the other bottle, you know, to, to, to go out for pizza this week instead. Enjoy my life. I think some
2: of the talk around, some of the talk around how many releases are coming out and and that sense of FOMO that we had through the 2010s, you know, building up to the pandemic, uh, even though we didn't know that, got us, I think, to a point where you had to have all the new releases. And now if you miss the new release, there'll be another one. You know, they have become a lot like bussies in Glasgow City Centre. <laughs> you know, there's another one coming in five minutes. Don't sweat this it's one. A very, so,
1: it's a very, it's a very. I think point, that's Jason. feeding
2: into part of this. Yeah, as well. yeah. That, Say that again.
1: I, I think that's an excellent point. Is that? Um, yeah, there's certainly there's still FOMO. There's lots of people still feeling FOMO about various specific mm-hmm. bourbons and stuff. But the fact that there's a new there's a new special edition release basically daily now. Um, means that there's always going to be something on the shelf a person can pick up, take home, and say, "Look at this limited thing that I got my hands on." Yeah. Um, even if it's not quite what maybe their friends are impressed yeah. by, I don't know. But there's still always going to be something. Yeah, it's it's a little exhausting.
0: And, and a bit of a dangerous road to be going down for a distillery who's really, you know, they're they're making their money off of their core product.
1: Well, is it dangerous or is it smart? Because you can use all these limited editions to trial consumer response and then decide, oh, look, people really okay. like this new whatever we put out. Let's bring it back in a couple of years when we have enough stock and make it a core product mm-hmm. or, a, or a, what I like to call a heavy limited edition, you know, where it's like it's limited, <laughs> but there's a lot of it. <laughs> So you could probably find it. <laughs> also a lot, and, and a lot of the, 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 the new, the ever, you know, um, you know, each new thing that's coming out each day. A lot of it is not from big distilleries. I think they're very measured about, most of them are very measured about releasing new products, even limited editions. Um, you're just seeing a lot of new brands, you know, started up by someone who got a hold of a few hundred casks and said, great. I want to make money. You know, here's how yeah. I'm, I'm going to turn it around and I'm going to sell this four year old bourbon f- with no provenance, you know, for 100 bucks with a snappy label and, you know, whatever, whatever other marketing things. And it's almost yeah. always just marketing things that they slap onto the bottle and the brand to make it appeal to people.
3: Mm-hmm. I think that's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. There was a bit of a hullabaloo here last week and um, there's a new distillery that have just put out their first release. Uh and their first okay. release is two hundred pounds a bottle. And um yeah, I'm I'm gonna say that people were losing their shit but not in a good way. Uh I think it's it was quite interesting to watch the the kind of reaction to um just I know like social media is a very dangerous place. But it's quite interesting to just just get a kind of feel for People who are not kind of in my little bubble of whiskey, you know, like people who are one step outside who are still definitely interested in whiskey and are chasing new releases. And, you know, especially because of where I am and the proximity to me, people who want to support a local distillery, it's very cool to be in at the beginning. Um, it's just very interesting. I'd love to know their maths as to how they reached that number because we all know that it doesn't cost £200 a bottle to produce a three year old uh, whiskey um it wasn't in a particularly fancy bottle so I don't think it's like custom blown glass that's going to be 15 quid a go um I just think it's interesting it did all sell (laughs) out which I think speaks to it was maybe speculators
2: oh boy but is
3: that people who are hedging their bets maybe (laughs) speculating on it I also had seen that they had done a, a marketing sheet where they had select casks with specific cask numbers available for sale, and they wanted a million pounds for cask number one.
0: I'm sorry. Oh, wow. And, and that's not an exaggeration. That's not, oh, I'll, I mean, I'll send you the photograph. Pounds, right. at
3: one million pounds. Pounds, not dollars.
0: Wow. Um, does, does all this sound like a jumping the shark situation? 100% jumping here? the shark.
3: And I'm, I'm curious that in late 2023, 2024, we have this. So that kind of behavior, I would thought, would be much more kind of like, hmm you would pitch that at the height of the pandemic i mean obviously it's three-year-old liquid, so they had no choice right they couldn't have done that two years ago when the pandemic and everyone was sat at home just being like yeah buy this now just i find it interesting that (laughs) there was an outcry of like that's outrageously expensive which i personally think it is quite expensive and yet there's enough of the silent majority who are like well yeah okay fine we'll just bet 200 seems reasonable i it seems crazy, and and that ties in wow. when we're talking about price sensitivity. I think there is, but it's at different price points in a bottle. There's always the people in Scotland that for as long as I've been working in whiskey, which is quite a long time, people won't spend more than, you know, whatever their fixed price is. But that fixed price doesn't really shift. So I'm talking about when I was working in retail, that price was about 50 mm. quid. And that is 13 years ago. Uh, and what your 50 quid got you 13 years ago compared to what 50 quid gets you today is a very different product. Um and it's it's an mm-hmm. interesting metric that doesn't seem to shift. Now like 50 quid is what I pay mm. for my bottle, but 50 quid filling your car 13 years ago would have done you a lot better than 50 quid today, <laughs> but we've just accepted that that oh well fuel costs more so when you go to the pump that price is going to be higher than it was back ago it's it's always struck me as weird that that number for whiskey doesn't shift as easily and so maybe what you're seeing, Susanna like stateside when people are getting a bit kind of well I'm, I'm probably only going to take that one bottle this week and if it's there next week when I go back to the liquor store then maybe if I still want it I will pick it up instead of it being a, uh, no I must take two now because I'm here I think it hasn't quite hit the UK in the same The same way. Definitely, I think, if you ask retailers, Mm. you'll see that things are um, not shifting as quickly, but I think the response to that is that retailers are being much more selective about what they put on the shelves. And instead Mm. of maybe taking all of an outturn of something, now you have to work across two or three different retailers if there's a set of something you want. For example, just to throw it out there, like the Diageo special leases. Some of the retailers local to me only took select bottlings so if i if i was a collector who mm. had to have them all then i would have to you know like fill in the gaps somewhere else so maybe that's the kind of measured response back it's not just about pricing but making it so that if you're really desperate to have everything you have to work harder as a consumer to go and get that
0: mm mm-hmm hmm. Yeah. Hmm.
2: Two very, very quick comments just from what you're saying there, Jess. Number one for me is if you're a new distiller and you're putting out your brand new product and you sell it for 50, 60 pounds and you see it sell on secondary for 150, 200, you may very well say to yourself, maybe that money could have gone into our pocket and not into the the secondary pocket. And and yet, for us to see a distiller bring out £200 for a bottle is crazy. The fact that it all sold out doesn't undermine anything right. they thought. And that's hugely frustrating as well. Um, and then to the second point of cast number one, selling for a million, what's one of the things all three of us have talked about is more producers want the money that's 10 years in the future They want it today. So if they sell you New Make Spirit, it's based on the price that cask would be in 10 years, not what New Make Spirit costs today. And the thought that that cask number one from that distillery will one day, 30, 40 years in the future, be worth 1 million is the reason you say, I'll sell it to you for a million today. You make tomorrow's money today, or you at least ask for tomorrow's (laughs) money today. And we've seen that across many corners of this industry. So those are my two points. I will say no more.
0: There you go. <laughs> You've wrapped it up. Susanna, is there one thing that that you're keeping your eye on? And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm slowly getting us out of here. But is there one thing that you're keeping your eye on for 2024 and beyond that we may not have brought up that, that you think we should be should have our finger on the pulse.
1: Yeah. Um, celebrity whiskey. I know we're all probably uh, tired of hearing about it, thinking about it, but it is very much still a thing. I'm so interested to see if it's going to be as much of a thing as, for example, celebrity tequila, which I think is, for some reason, I certainly think gets more buzz when, you know, like, uh, kylie jenner has has 818 i can or kendall i don't know which one anyway one of the k's <laughs> jason um, knows he's
3: really into them
1: which one is it jason <laughs> <laughs> so
2: perfect. you know
1: and um and the rock with terramana and you've got many other examples um with and i'll just focus on bourbon in particular because there's a few celebrity scotches but not that many um there's lots of celebrity bourbons, but I have not yet seen the Casamigos of bourbon. I haven't seen the, who's the George Clooney who's, who's attaching himself to a bourbon. And I don't know if that's because, um, there's just no one with that star power yet who has decided to get into the bourbon game, or if it's because the bourbon industry works differently than the tequila industry. Mm -hmm. And as far as, you know, supply goes, um, it's just a different, um, kind of game. But that's what I will be keeping my eye on is kind of where are we going with all these celebrity brands? Which ones are going to pan out? You know, which ones are people actually buying and and buying again versus like buying once for a lark and then never going back to? Um, So I don't have any answers. It's just a really interesting um, open question for me.
2: Yeah, the the Matthew McConaughey one has my attention because that seemed like that compromise between... I am just a brand of bourbon and I am more of a, I'm even beyond a celebrity endorsement of bourbon. I'm actually in the room. I'm actually having the conversations with Wild Turkey about bourbon. That that, that always struck me as slightly different.
1: Fair enough. Yeah, I think that, that, I mean, McConaughey's involvement with Wild Turkey has wrapped up. He certainly, I don't think, yeah. ever had yeah. an ownership stake. I don't think Campari would would go for that. So it was more of a, we're we're, going to pay you to help us with this and lend your celebrity cachet. Whereas with like Casamigos being the example I always go back to for tequila, Clooney for sure had an ownership stake and he cashed out big time when Diageo bought it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some celebrity bourbon brands where the celebrities are owners and not just, hey, we're here shilling. So you know the two um, Vampire Diaries guys. They've got uh, brothers bond. Is a it's an MGP sourced brand. Um, it's bourbon and encompasses rye now as well. It's fine. It's MGP juice. You know it, it tastes. It's well made. Um, I think it's doing pretty well. It's an interesting one. Those guys are not as famous as George Clooney, but you know they're very invested. They they um, they're out there actively selling and talking about and and doing, you know, podcasts or whatever with, with people. So, you know, they're engaged in a way that, you know, whoever I'm not, I can't think of anyone off. I'm not going to name any names, Mm -hmm. but you know, other celebrities (laughs) were just like, sure, I'll drink your bourbon while I'm, you know, on Jimmy Fallon or something.
0: So, but I don't know. Yeah. Do you think it's helpful
1: to have a celebrity, Endorsement? Uh,
0: not specific to that brand, because I think it is helpful to that brand if if it's a celebrity that doesn't necessarily own it. But they, you know, Matthew McConaughey joins Wild Turkey for a little bit to, to you know, get the brand out there. But I'm talking bourbon, rye, whiskey in general. Is it good for that category to have that Hollywoodification um, of, of your spirit.
1: It depends on what you, you know, how you're defining good, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, is it going to help sell more of it? Yes. That's, mm-hmm. that's good for the people who make and sell the whiskey. Is it going to, um, is it going to create lifelong consumers, you know, and translate into sustained <laughs> sales? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a, a less clear you know i don't i don't know um i don't think it's a bad thing for the industry though it's bringing more visibility to whiskey okay. it's making okay. whiskey more um ordinary and mainstream and every every day for people and i think that is good for those of us who love whiskey and work in whiskey and want to see whiskey be appreciated and enjoyed
0: well Susanna skyver barton it's been a pleasure bringing you back and talking with you again and picking at your brain and, and just hearing what you're thinking about and helping us, you know, shape some of our thoughts about, you know, some th- similar things that, that we're thinking about. So, um, we raise our glasses to you though. Mine's empty. Boo. Oh, Jason's Not got water. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> And, uh, and we hope you'll come back again come January uh, 2025. And, and, you know, just like you had said, you didn't listen back to the previous year's episode. I, I didn't do my homework. I, I listened to it last year, but I didn't listen to it in advance of this conversation because I don't like doing homework. Uh, but maybe next time around we can, at least I'll try to do my homework. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll at least, when I listen to this year's episode, make a little outline of what we talked about so that I can at least jog my memory. <laughs>
0: uh, well, thanks again. Oh, cheers. Yeah, cheers. Cheers to you. It has
1: been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I love talking to you guys. I'm so glad Jess is now a part of this on the regular because it's nice to have, a, have a third voice. <clears throat> uh, especially... Excuse me, especially uh, a voice who's who's based in a different market and has a, a different perspective. Um, yeah, but yeah, this this has been fun as always, and I really appreciate you guys asking me to be part of it.
2: Good to see you. Good luck for twenty four.
0: <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> oh wait, the worst clank ever, av- Jason. That clank doesn't even work. It's like plastic on a. There you go.
2: You say that every time, no matter what I put together, you say, that is the worst one ever.